Simon. Hello. Hey, Simon. <laughs> Hello. Hey, Simon. It's Skyler. Hey, Simon. Hello, Simon. What's up, Simon? Hello. How you doing? Hey. Hello. Hey, Hello. Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello, Simon. Hi. Conversations with storytellers. Wisdom, folk and fairy tales from our elders. A meeting with professional storytellers. After the passing of some great storytellers, I decided I wanted to interview some of the elders in the community of traditional storytelling. I wanted to capture their thoughts, their ideas, and maybe ideals in their own voices. I didn't want a traditional interview, but a conversation with these folks. I was not looking for deep personal secrets, but for insights on what makes these legends in my world tick, what inspired them, what makes them do what they do and how they do it. Some will tell us their favourite stories. Others will share their thoughts on our profession. Some will give us glimpses of their lives and the lives of those around them, who their mentors and inspirations were or are. All of them share gems of wisdom. Welcome to Conversations with Storytellers. This interview put many smiles on my face. I had a great time talking to the wonderfully effervescent Laura Sims. I first met her online through the National Storytelling Network Listserv, a great place where storytellers share ideas and help each other out. We have emailed each other a few times and chatted on the phone, but still we have not yet met. This was my first attempt at a recording over Skype and is not the best of recordings, I admit. Using recording software, I have cleaned it up to the best of my ability and the conversation is very much worth listening to. I enjoy Laura's work a great deal and she has been working her craft for many, many years and still has the energy and the giggle of a youngster. It was a joy and pleasure to chat with Laura. I hope you find it as joyous and insightful to listen to. Laura Sims. So, we've never met, but we've written to each other. No. I think we spoke once before, maybe, a while back. Yes. Um, and I do have a couple of your CDs, The Fish Tales and The King of Togo Togo, which my daughter really liked. Oh, I know, that's so nice. You love it. Um, and you're, for, I, I've obviously read um, a fair bit of your writing, not obviously, but I have read a fair bit of your writing, um, not just on, on listservs, but also in other places as well. And there's a, there's a lot of compassion in both the stories that you that I've heard you tell on CD and also in the writing that you do. Um, where do you think, do you think that your, um, that your, your faith has a lot to do with that? Your upbringing? Faith. <laughs> I mean, in the, in both ways, of course. I mean, it is, you know, growing up Jewish in Brooklyn after World War II um, in this kind of zany post-Holocaust neighborhood that was highly religious, actually, not my family, but the neighborhood. I, I think a, a sort of basic tenet of acted out or not among people is about um, kindness and caring for others. And I had a lot of um, very tragic things happen as a child in my household that I think actually um, I can remember being a very little girl and realizing that 
suffering was part of life. So I, I just remember having this uh, thought while walking up 47th Street to my girlfriend Susan Grossberg's house and being startled by the thought and also thinking that it, it, it separated me from my girlfriends at the time in some way. Isn't that interesting? I mean, it was very much a thought that I had. I must have been 10 years old. And so these girlfriends um, of yours, were they were they Jewish also? Or were they not Jewish? Uh, for the most part, yes. I mean, I lived in a predominantly Jewish enclave and neighborhood that, um, you know, Brooklyn is very, very big. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. And around me were, you know, the, the Italian neighborhood, the Norwegian neighborhood, the African-American neighborhood, um, the Irish neighborhood. Uh, so, and my neighborhood was an increasingly Jewish neighborhood filled with immigrants who came to the United States immediately after the war. Many, many Holocaust survivors lived on my street, and it became from a sort of just sort of urban country street to a very, very crowded, um, very, very religious street with a lot of synagogues, like makeshift synagogues and kosher stores in people's basements because there was this kind of um, tumult of settlement that was going on in the neighborhood. It's, it's interesting because you don't normally think about... Um settlements being inside a city borough <laughs> like Brooklyn I think it's very much I mean now too same thing you know there are whole areas where um, maybe at the moment given the climate of my uh, strange country um, <laughs> you know not as many immigrants are coming in but always even in Manhattan the neighborhoods are very defined by the immigrant populations that came there. So, and do they? So, I, I lived in London for a while, and my my cousin lives in London still. And when I was there, there were very, you know, same thing, um, very um, boundary-driven cultural um, ethnic groups of people in certain parts of London. Um, but I know because my, my cousin lived there is that these areas shifted and changed is that the same in, in Brooklyn as well? Oh yes yeah I mean where I grew up become almost like an Eastern European shtetl the Hasidic Jews now really own that neighborhood in fact Muriel Bloch great storyteller from France you may know and we've been very close friends for I don't know 35 years Muriel came to New York, and one of the things we did was go there where I grew up because we both were curious about a hotel that had replaced the bank on the corner of my street, which was advertised as a kosher hotel. <laughs> and so it was like an expedition <laughs> to discover what constituted a kosher hotel. And what we decided, really, was a hotel that had um, plastic covers on the furniture, the elegant furniture in the lobby and the chandelier. <laughs> but it's a very famous classic for me. <laughs> because um, 
I think my storytelling career really began because of the Jewish holidays. Uh, it, there's a Jewish holiday called Simcha's Torah, which is the celebration of the Torah. And in my neighborhood, in the evening, uh, the children, all of us, would line up outside the synagogue. And we would be, um, we would bring an apple with a candle in it. And then we'd be given a, a stick that we put in it. And on the end of the stick was a little Israeli flag. And they would light the candle when the lights went down. And we would make a procession from the synagogue along 14th Avenue down my street, which was the, the holiest street except for my house. And um, the rabbis would come out with their... <laughs> with their Torahs, and they would be swaying, you know, in their long black robes and singing in, in Hebrew. And we would all follow them down the street and in front of the bank that became the Kosher Hotel, where I also had my first kiss, by the way, um, when it was a bank. And um, I didn't save anything. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so there would be a little, like, Klezmer bat. And all night long, the rabbis would dance with the Torah, and we would spiral around and round, and it was completely without parents and um, no supervision. And it was there that I really discovered kind of ecstatic presence, you know, just dancing yeah. on the street all night. And I loved that. Uh, so it, it really drove me to the synagogue, which I think is why I became a Buddhist, because... <laughs> I loved ceremony and I loved, okay. I really loved the practice, a practice that opened compassion, didn't just talk about it. And I was in search of, um, of these things in the storytelling, in my life, you know, what was authentic, what is joy, um, you know, symbolic literature. I acted out fairies, uh, fairies, fairy tales <laughs> in the backyard rampantly. And engaged all my girlfriends in this activity. I was, of course, the director. And um, I would be a um, joint Maid Marian and Robin Hood character who rode a kind of make horse throughout my um, backyard. And I would direct everyone. And, and they would get exhausted of this. I had endless episodes, which I still do. And then my friends would say, oh, come on, let's do something else. Or, and I would say, no, <laughs> let's go on with the story. <laughs> so I think that I was, you know, for me, I, I was having um, Simcha's Torah, the joy of ecstasy and the joy of literature day and night in my life. And it was both some kind of wild quest and also some kind of solace for these um tragedies that were happening in my own household and that really consumed so many people on my street. And my father was the neighborhood dentist, and I remember sitting, you know, it was after World War II, and as we grew up, my mother would have us sit in the waiting room by the window, so it would look like he had a lot of patience. <laughs> and we were advertisers. So, <laughs> and I, I think that... Um, I would see, you know, people sitting very quietly who had numbers on their arms. And I can remember asking my mother and her, you know, in her Romanian way, just gesturing, like to throw salt over her shoulders to 
keep away the evil eye. And it was only years later that she really explained to me what it was. And it, it shocked me. I, the numbers, I, it shocked me. And then I read Exodus. I was always a, a sort of extravagant reader and read Exodus. And I remember sitting in the schoolyard with my head down on my knees and crying that that was real in the world and possible. Yeah. And it matched these tragedies in my own household. So I think these are the threads of my whole life <laughs> um, in this strange um, confluence of of historical and social and religious events in the neighborhood after World War II. I, I imagine it was something like that in London as well, although people were had left London and there was actual bombing, so you would have a different kind of storyline going on. But Yeah, my aunt, um, she passed away a few years ago. She she wrote, um, she got cancer and she survived it for 10 years and then she lost the battle the second time around. And so she did um, uh, a mini biography for her grandchildren, and I, I she sent it to most of the family, and I and I read it, and there was this one paragraph on it, um, which talked about going to school during the Blitz. She lived in Birmingham, not in London, but in Birmingham, which is another town that was levelled like Coventry, like Liverpool, you know, like many of the big cities. Um, and she said that my mum remem remembers the Anderson shelter that they would all go into and the bombing would start um, and they they lived in a suburb of Birmingham um, church bells instead of sirens and today my mum if she hears church bells unexpectedly she'll just start weeping because of that but my aunt talked about how getting on the on the bus the regular the regular bus to school and driving by the bus would drive by these buildings that were still smoking or you know just completely destroyed and wondering how many empty empty desks there would be when she got to school her, which friends of hers would be missing mm. because they were killed in the bombing that that night you know and um it kind of brought home to me mm. the immediacy of it all um, and the fact that that still goes on yes. now, it's, it's just in other countries, it's not in my country anymore, it's not here in, in America, but it's like in these other places, there are still these civilians who are having their homes destroyed and, and wondering which friends, which family members are going to be gone, you know. Nothing changes when it comes to that kind of stuff, and it's really sad that we don't learn. You know, I think it's um, becoming very... Um poignant to me now as if my whole life is between these bookends of injustice and, and war because now with um, these terrible things happening with terrorist bombings and these huge migrations and there a lot of violence here um, I know there is in the UK as well mm -hmm. somehow it comes back to me, the possibility of it happening again. You know, every day when I read the news, I, I don't only read it. I, I end up, not in the moment when I read it, but at odd times during the day, I'll end up crying. And I realize that I'm, like, inside my body are these memories. Now, I wrote a whole one-woman storytelling show called Reconciled. 
or how to fight the mania. And a lot of it was this exploration of how the stories that were not told, but that were there in the atmosphere of where I grew up, really defined so much of my life and my childhood play. You know, when I mean, I did orchestrate these elaborate girlfriend events, but I also played by myself on the side of my house. I lived in the old farmhouse from the neighborhood. Borough Park, it was called. And my father converted it, you know, after the war, once his business was doing a little well. But it was no farmhouse. And, and between that house and a kind of, you know, apartment building next door, there was a place that nothing ever grew. And I had a kind of um, private graveyard there because I saved animals, <laughs> stray animals and would bury things and I had little ceremonies and I would tell the story of like the doll that I was burying or you know a, a half a stocking or my mother's single earring and I really was obsessed with fairy tales <laughs> so I sometimes would take this my favorite doll was not the really beautiful French doll that was sent to me but was this ragtag doll, which oddly was named after my father, called Lefty Louie, and it had an eye that was falling out and was partially bald, and um, it was sort of the um, prophecy of my future. My mother was a concert pianist. She had a stroke and became crippled on the left side, and Lefty Louie's left leg was always you know, dangling. I was always taping together, and I had a portable um, hospital for her, and um, rag clothing. She was my main uh, audience in the in this little graveyard area. <laughs> and I would put her against the wall, and I would tell her stories about everything, and also tell, retell the fairy tales. And they would. So actually, now as a kind of recovery, I've had to spend forty years organizing. <laughs> I'm joking, but it might be true. Who knows? Yeah, but I fell in love with this story. They saved my life, actually. That's so neat. That's so, neat. so I know you also do um, personal stories as well. And um, I've some... you just had a huge, you just had a huge one. <laughs> I know. You heard one here. I know. But when you're when you're working with other people and you're you, you yeah. do you, you do your folk. I mean, I I knew you as a folktale person and then I started to see that you were doing more and more personal stories um, and I see your things for these these one woman shows that you've that you've done posted out there in the ether and I, I wondered um, maybe I just didn't know you for that when I first heard of you the personal stories and I only knew you as, as somebody that did folk and fairy tales myths and legends um, but what was was there a crossover? Was there a point in time where there was some sort of um, catalyst that happened that that made you do more and more personal stories? Well, actually, there were two. There was a small catalyst, like a little storm catalyst, which is that I had an adult radio show on WBAI mm -hmm. called An Ocean of Story. And it was every Monday night from... 10 to 11.30 p.m. And I would tell stories 
Um, and I would also interview traditional storytellers because I would work with the World Music Institute. So I had these fantastic um, shows. But sometimes I was completely unprepared. And I would get to the station. And um, so I would, you know, tell a fairy tale. And then I would talk about my cat and dog who had adventures in my house. They were so funny together. Or I would, um, you know, tell a story, and in the middle of it, I would just say, oh, that reminds me of what happened to me in the grocery store today when I, this man was standing behind me, and I was so afraid. I heard him yelling, you know, get away from me, just get away from me. And then I quickly paid and ran out, but he was behind me, just, and I could hear a smacking sound. And I thought to myself, I, I have to turn around. Um, I, I could be in danger. And I turned around, and it was just a mad person behind me, smacking his own hand, yelling at it to get away, get away. And I realized at that moment that that was how it was in my story, that this kind of secret this story was this kind of somebody trying to get away from themselves. And how much sometimes I tried to get away. So I would think things would happen. And they were not planned. And endless people wrote to me about those stories. But I would get just endless notes from people who would say, you know, I'm very depressed. I listen to your show. And that's the hour and a half of my life where I, I find meaning. Or I wish I could meet your cat and dog. Or thank you for that story and I loved what happened in your kitchen with that nine-year-old girl and I thought how curious that was. So it began my exploring, actually literally putting those stories inside my stories. Huh. But um, because I thought to myself that people didn't understand the truth of the fairy tales and they didn't get the mythic quality of their personal stories. So very often people tell the personal story, it's kind of self-preoccupied. Right. And it's not really a story. And they tell a fairy tale as if it's so make-believe, fantastic thing that's happening. But so I, I wanted to explore that. And so I did that. And then in 1989, the real catalyst was a sort of earthquake in my own life, which occurred um, because I was getting a divorce and it was extremely painful. And then I discovered that I had cancer at the same time. And also, um, I had created these magnificent international festivals for Jonesboro. And I, in a way, was just sort of taken down. I, I was sort of like removed. And all those things happened together. And so I was so um, devastated. And I didn't know what to do. So I had this thought about all my students who I would tell them to work on a story and a journal. And, you know, we'd always have two sides. And on one side would be this happened in the story. And then I would tell them if they had a dream or um, a commentary or an incident in their life, they should write it on the other side. So I began doing in which I began to explore the myth 
from the point of view of my personal descent and oh, wow. um, ascent life. So I then performed that. And it's written up also, parts of it left out, but in Christine, um, I forgot her last name now, in a book that she named after my essay called The Long Journey Home, I began to see that, that then people could relate to the fairy tales more seriously as a, a way of being able to explore their personal lives, but less um, in sort of having a, a bigger view of their own life so they didn't get triggered by whatever projection or trauma or obstacle was inside that the content of the story and the way you lived it out could take you through. Right. Which led to my doing these right. workshops in which I wrote down what I felt for myself was the sort of fundamental inner structure of the fairy tale. And then I had people work on pieces of that structure and then construct a personal fairy tale that had the integrity, not the time symbolism and, you know, embedded wisdom of traditional fairy tale, but could take people through a journey that was also less, uh, was very penetrating and intimate, but gave the detachment that allowed you to go through the journey, at least on an imaginative, restorative way. So that's how the whole thing happened. And now I just do it all the time. I love doing it. <laughs> like I can tell a story and then say, you know, and she wandered on the desert for 12 years. That's such a long time. Let me just tell you the story. <laughs> there you go. So uh, what, one of the things I did want to touch on was, I mean, you've got awards and you've you've set up so many different programs and platforms for story but I've, I also read that you've done work with UNICEF and also the IMC the International Medical Corps um, and that you mm -hmm. you've done work in Haiti and um, you also adopted a young lad from Sierra Leone and um, I wonder what um, you know working with UNICEF working <laughs> with the IMC um, and and uh, this young man that you adopted, what kind of uh, effect did that have on your life? And maybe what, <laughs> what, what made you adopt um, this child from, this young man from Sierra Leone? Perhaps, I mean, there's so many things that always, but I, I think that um, when I met a Tibetan Buddhist teacher, which is something that happened to me in my mid-twenties, and it was... Um, I was sort of searching for something because I kept reading. I worked for the Museum of Natural History as a storyteller. And I had sort of access to this library behind the library. And I would read all of these missionary journals seated on the floor. I mean, just utterly um, it, it, for years, I, it, I was going to school. And the films that actually were there of like black fleeting myths over a body and, and bringing someone who looked really ill back to life. That, that these people were highly initiated and trained. And I thought there's no way that I could be trained in that way until I, I met this very uncanny um, Tibetan Buddhist teacher. 
And then I just decided to do it because I thought if I'm going to find my mind, what is the mind? I have to have a practice and I have to have a teacher. Otherwise, I'm constantly reinterpreting it back to what I already know. So I need some daring guide. And obviously, the Rasmussen's Inuit shamans were long gone and they weren't going to take me on. Done, so this is how I did that. <laughs> One of the primary um, teachings of Tibetan Buddhism that completely sort of knocked me over and also made me understand a lot of things about the fairy tales was this idea of gentle discussion. So if you go to like a Tibetan museum or even, you know, at the... Um, British Museum, you see these almost monstrous tankas. There are paintings of deities, you know, with 12 heads and violent weapons and standing on bodies and their tongues out and eyes bulging. And, you know, and then it'll say, this is the deity of compassion. And you think, wait a minute. (laughs) I don't want to meet him or her on the street. (laughs) But I began to understand little by little, that that power could, with two parts of it, one, that sometimes the skillful means of compassion is that egoless fierceness to stop violence or and transform it on the spot. Mm-hmm. What was that? That each one of these weapons wielded by the monster was actually a weapon not to harm, but to cut the ego. You know, <laughs> like ego of myself. I have an opinion of myself. I am who I am. I will not change. But here is, um, so, <laughs> this idea that genes are devoted to transforming into compassion. So when I was hired by UNICEF, Norwegian People's Aid, quite an accidental hiring, to work in people's voices, also it was in 1996, and I began to hear these kids' terrible stories, you know, child soldiers, rape victims, street kids, criminals, prostitution, and I was listening to their stories. I Something almost... Um, voyeuristic and and nauseating about the way in which we all listen to their stories of tremendous horror. And that's what we wanted. We wanted the horrific details. So then, you know, everybody could write about what a terrible situation it was and raise money. And so I began to explore this whole idea of transforming monsters, which I would have them instead of after they did that, you know, I would have them create monsters of their imagination and then have attributes that they then could transmute. Like if that monster could do something really good and use the power for good, what would they do? So imaginally, this transformation would occur. So I began to do that everywhere. And um, one day I will write about it because I have a book called In Praise of Fear and Monsters in Mind. I just need to have a praise of <laughs> money and time. <laughs> but um, so that's uh, so when I met these kids, 
instead of seeing them as either victims or monsters, I thought about how extraordinary it was that they were there to help other children. They wanted to be spokespersons. They were the transmuted monsters who had been through so much suffering and so much violence. They didn't want any more violence in their lives, and they could devote their lives to healing others. They understood the key that when you care only about yourself, you're not a happy person. And if you care about others, you are a happy person. So I think that's sort of at the base of how that all happened with Ishmael. And there were three other boys that I got out also. Because I felt that they deserved a chance to be amazing human beings in the world. <laughs> and Ishmael's proved that. Which each one of them is <laughs> in their own way, in their own journey that they've had. Oops. So that's sort of how it, it happened. It was, and it was very complicated, and I had no um, knowledge how to do it. And so on the day that I decided to do it, to get Ishmael out of the war, I thought, I, I don't know how to do this. So maybe if I do one thing or two things every single day or call two people out of the booth, something will happen. That Like in the stories, because this happened, something else will happen. You know, because I turned this road, there's an old woman with a seashell, you know, seated on the top of a mountain, and she knows the way. So I thought, well, maybe maybe this will happen. <laughs> I lived by my story. I lived by my stories, seeking signs and listening. Yeah, right. If I don't do that, everything falls apart, as a matter of fact. If I try to live a normal, conventional life, nothing happens. So I'm a servant to my storytelling. <laughs> I work for them. I'm an agent, secret agent, secret story agent. My ex-husband used to call me a story spy because if he tried to tell me a concocted story, I could always hear in the sound of his voice. And then I would ask the question. <laughs> now we have, we're great friends and we always laugh about that. <laughs> I mean, I have lived you know i've lived as a storyteller since i was 20 years old and i'm 70. that means that i've been doing this for 50 years i have to tell myself this over and over because i can't believe it (laughs) today i was reading a story that i helped to edit many years ago for a bhutanese folklorist and I really such a love this story, and you probably would love it, about Meme Hele Hele. Do you know this story? It's a classic Bhutanese story about a really contented man who found who was digging and found an enormous turquoise. And this light emanating from the turquoise nearly blinded him, and he thought, This is amazing. So he took it home. And you know, only the most meritorious and Extraordinary people would find such a turquoise. But as he was walking, he saw a man who had a horse. And the man said, you look so happy. And Meme said, I am so happy. I found a turquoise. And he showed it to him. He said, but that's extraordinary. And he said, you know, but uh, would you trade me your horse for this turquoise? And the man said, this horse is worth nothing but your turquoise is priceless. He said, no, I would love to have a horse. 
So he traded it for the horse, and then he traded the horse for a sheep, for a goat, for a rooster. And each time, each person was saying, you know, what? Until finally he was carrying the rooster under his arm, and he heard a beautiful song. And he thought, oh my God, that is the most beautiful song. If I could sing that song, I would be the happiest person in the world. And so he found the singer, and he said, excuse me, I love this song. Would you be willing to barter this rooster for a song? And the man said, you give away a rooster, which is food, for a song? He said, yes. He said, I did this, I did that, blah, 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 blah. So he got the song, and he learned it. He was walking home, and he thought, I think I'm the happiest person in the world. I'm the wealthiest person in the world. Perhaps it says in the Bhutanese story, perhaps he was. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I love this story. <laughs> I like that story too. You know, everybody said, he's a, he's a fool. He's a fool. What a fool. But not if you have the retain the happiness, right? I mean, that's more important than anything the contentedness. <laughs> More question. What's the question you ache to ask? The question I guess that I ache to ask. Well, there's well, there's two. One of one of them is um, you worked with the Real Myth Ensemble. For fish mm. Yes. That that CD was just an amazing soundscape. Uh, mm. Stories embedded in it, and I really liked that. What was that? experience like working with the <laughs> Real Myth Ensemble? Well, uh, we performed together for many years together, and we also worked on a lot of other things, and they were great musicians. The CD, the CD that came before it was Four-Legged Tales, and um, then we did Fish Tales, and actually we, I'm now going to actually, after all these <laughs> years, do um, wing, winged stories. But I was working, you know, I've always worked with musicians. I've worked with great musicians. I still do. And it's, um, so finding a musician who can work with me to not illustrate the story or create background music, but can really work with the kind of in invisible emotional journey of the story so that the unspoken part of the story keeps deepening, like um, the ripples of deep waves underwater that will carry the emotion or the feeling beyond. And some sense of culture and, you know, we work very hard at it. Just finding the right people is what makes the difference. Someone who really listens, yeah. who doesn't want to illustrate or be clever. or So that's why I called, like, Randy Crafton and Steve Gorn and... Um, Jorge and others who were on there, you know, I worked with African musicians and actually my son's voice is on that one too. <laughs> he did the rap song for, um, I think it's um, Lobster, somebody else where he says, hey man, yeah, yeah. some step on my fin, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, so uh, the really the clue to it is how do I still have the fullness of my deep relationship to the audience? Because there are musicians who I work with who obstructed that. 
they didn't mean to. I mean, they were wonderful musicians, but they didn't have that extra surrender to relationship. Right. You know, really deep listening in and also willing to let the story rise up to be that which holds the mind and then the music does its work. So I, I would work, you know, in conjunction a little bit like I did in my backyard with my girlfriends. Okay, now this happens and that happens and you go over there and you do that. And so um, general storyteller prevailed to some degree, but now I really listen. Like they'll say, hey, listen to this or try this or what do you think of this? And I think they love it. They, you know, they love it too. They're very accomplished. They have no, nothing is it, you know, they're not at risk of something. They're not, What's at stake is just creating something really wonderful. Yeah. So we had a good time. Julia Haynes, who I met many years ago, the same time that I met this great chorus player, is playing Celtic harp um, on the Seal Maiden. And she also is um, on Women and Wild Animals. She plays the chorus on that. Just a wonderful musician, and we've worked together. Now it's 25 years. <laughs> More, maybe. <laughs> so my last question. I know you've met a great many storytellers through your career as a storyteller. Mm. Um, but out of all the storytellers who you've not met, um, either living or dead, mm. who would you like to meet if you could name one of them? Mm. I know that's a hard question. <laughs> well, in a way, you know, thinking about it here, I don't know. Um, I would have liked to have heard Ruth Sawyer. Yeah. Although she was probably more literary than storytelling. And, um, but... I would have loved to have heard Amadou Hampate Ba, who is um, from Mali. I've read so much of what he's written uh, about storytelling, and he also, um, you know, I, I knew the secretary from UNESCO who told me many, many things about him. And he was a great um, diplomat and a storyteller who had a, an endless uh, memory of oral stories that he could call up at the right moment in Proverbs. And I would love to have heard him at UNESCO or even in the village, Pool village in Bali. So that would have been really great. And, and I heard when I was very young, I got to hear a um, great choral player whose name now is going from my mind and I wish I could sit in the marketplace in Gambia a hundred years ago and hear him so that I could hear everyone listening also <laughs> yeah that would be me and Rumi <laughs> yes yeah and Hafiz yeah, how did he tell the stories that are in the poems? I know. But out of a place of ecstasy, 
Yes, yes. Me too. That's a great one. Yes, you know, I once, uh, really, I have Ben Haggerty to thank for meeting and hearing many amazing people when I was very young. But I heard once in the Royal Festival Hall, I think her name was Sheila Stewart. She was a traveler and she had her 12-year-old son with her. She just sat on a chair in the Royal Festival Hall. And I actually am not a great fan of DuckTales, the way some people are. But I was so riveted by her that this, it, and I realized she did nothing externally. Yeah. But it was so um, powerful internally that the whole room was electrified and listening and laughing. And it, it was just an extraordinary, you know, I, I was so grateful to hear her. Yeah, right. I feel this. I feel yeah. A, a similar way with Alice Kane, who oh. was originally from Ireland, but then uh, spent, I think, either the second part or the most part of her life in in Canada. And uh, uh, Dan Yajinski um, told me if I only go away from this conference that we were at together, and I only buy one thing, it should be the CD of of Alice Kane, and that's what I did. And it, it, you know, for for just listening to a person's voice with no accompaniment at all, and no no visual cues either from her. It's all in her voice, and it, it was it's they're just incredible. My favorite uh, listening is done with. Uh, you know, I met Alice Kane once, and it was 1967. And it was the day that I was deciding whether I would drop out of graduate school. And I went, I was at the University of Toronto in a fellowship. And I went to the library, public library, at about a quarter to five. Because it's my whole life, I've always could see clearly in the library. And I had to make a big decision. And the library... I was closing and I was crestfallen that a librarian said, well, come downstairs. There's a woman who's going to talk about Irish stories and you could come down with us. So I went downstairs and there on the little platform was an elderly woman playing the harp. And she told Russian fairy tales and Irish fairy tales. And it was later when I when this accident happened where I told the fairy tale in Central Park that I told the Russian fairy tale I heard her tell uh, of Ivanushka and Alanushka that was so clearly embedded in my mind. And it was Dan later who pointed out to me that the old woman that I had heard was Alice Kane. Wow. And that in a subterranean way, she made me a storyteller. That's so cool. <laughs> Well, I should let you go because you have to go and uh, take your cat to the vet. Thank you so much indeed yes, for my... uh, spending this much time. You're so welcome. Uh, it was excellent. It was, sure. was an <laughs> honour. Uh, no, it's delightful <laughs> and funny and wonderful. I'm glad you thought so. Well, thanks very much indeed for your time. I hope your kitty cat's okay and uh, everything turns out just fabulously for you. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome.
You can hear him. That's why I'm shaking him. Bye. Take care. See you. (laughs) A huge thank you to my guest, Laura Sims, for letting me spend so much time with her and ask all those questions. This was recorded a couple of years ago. I hope you, my listeners, enjoyed the conversation now as much as I did back then. Also, thanks to Ben Schultz, who provided the music. That's me on the drums, too. He is a great musician and a fantastic songwriter. Creating a podcast is very much a labour of love and takes a large amount of time and no small resource to make. To help keep this podcast going and to help create more and also improve the quality of these recordings, please consider making a donation. You can do this either through my website, simonbrooksstoryteller.com, or on my Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash simonbrooks. A couple of dollars a month, a single donation, if you like a particular episode, will all help me get more proficient and allow me to travel further afield to interview these incredible voices. Also, leave a review on iTunes or wherever else you found this podcast. It helps not just me, but it helps others find this podcast. Please jump onto the interwebs and find out more about my guests and follow them and me. All the guests are amazing storytellers. Again, thank you for listening and being there. I hope you join me for the next episode of Conversations with Storytellers, when the guest will be, well, you'll have to wait. Until next time, adios. Adios.